We believe God has an important role for you and the church to play in the Great Commission. Don't know what the Great Commission is? That's all right. The Missions Course is a six-week online study that reveals God's heart for the nations and invites you to play your part in it. We've designed this course to tech nicely in between classes, while you're making dinner, or on your daily commute. Missions isn't just for them, it's for you too. Use the code ANCHOREDHOPE to take $10 off your registration. Visit themissionscourse.com to learn more and register today. Anchored Hope provides practical help to those hurting by anchoring their hope in Jesus and helping others gain a better understanding of his promises. We offer reputable biblical counsel to those suffering or experiencing difficult seasons. Our counselors are highly trained and bring a vast experience in addressing the various issues of life. To meet with a counselor, visit anchoredhope.co to find a counselor that fits your needs and schedule an appointment today. We are so thankful for the opportunity to talk with Jared Wilson today. Jared Wilson serves as assistant professor of pastoral ministry and author in residence at Midwestern Baptist Theological Seminary. He's the general editor of For the Church and also the author of numerous books, including Gospel Wakefulness, The Gospel Driven Church, and most recently, Love Me Anyway, How God's Perfect Love Fulfills Our Deepest Longings. He and his wife, Becky, have been married for 23 years and they have two daughters, Macy and Grace. Jared will be discussing the topic of resting in God's sovereignty versus toxic positivity. This is really important, especially as we deal with issues of suffering in our lives. We think you're going to really enjoy this conversation. So let's dive right in. I think this topic, divine sovereignty versus toxic positivity, the toxic positivity phrase, it's like a trending thing, which means that it's annoying to me to even have to say it, but I know it's a real reality in our lives. And I personally, even though as a counselor, we're walking through the sovereignty of God and suffering or in marriages or in conflict on a day, daily basis, right? But I think this is something even for me personally that I can feel it in my heart flip-flop all of the time. And so I think it's a really important topic, even as teachers or counselors or ministers of the gospel, to really take a step back and think through how am I actually, am I trusting in the sovereignty of God or am I just trying to be so positive that I push through this? So the first question that we really would have to ask is how do we define sovereignty and how do we define then that toxic positivity, if you will? Well, I like to root sovereignty in the biblical expression in the gospels about the kingdom of God being at hand. I know when a lot of people talk about sovereignty or divine sovereignty, they're talking about things like predestination and sort of the meticulous ordering of events. I think the classic definition in the reform tradition is something like that God foreordains everything that comes to pass, which is sort of the you know blanket term. I guess there's some things he's making happen, some things he's quote unquote allowing to happen or something like that. But I like just the idea of, I mean, sovereignty as a, you know, outside this, the divine sovereignty concept just simply refers to rule and refers to, you know, sort of power, I suppose. And so if we look at that sort of conception through the gospels, it's really just about God being in control, being over, having authority over all things. We see in, in the book of Hebrews that Christ is upholding the universe by the word of his power. So I like the conception of divine sovereignty. I mean, I do affirm the, the view that he's foreordaining everything that comes to pass, but I just think it's, 
it's a more sort of embraceable subject if we just talk about the kingdom of God and God's rule over, you know, over all things. Yeah, to bring it, we're looking at this big picture and we want to bring it down a little bit more. Then we would say he's in control of our particular lives. Would you say that? Yes. Yeah. And I mean, yes, it's just, that's the fine point to get to, I think, eventually in the conversation. I know we're going to be talking about, you know, people who are grieving and suffering and those sorts of things. And I just think you can start off affirming God's sovereignty just in the sense that he's in control and you can eventually get to the you know, he sent this into your life, you know, sort of sovereignty. Yeah. The plan and um, purpose, yeah. Right, right. You can do that eventually in the conversation, but it's usually not something to lead with, I wouldn't think. Yeah. So why do you think that big picture is so important to start with? Well, the big picture is important to start with because if we believe in God, we don't live our lives as if he is an afterthought or incidental to anything in our life. And it's important to acknowledge just for our own sanity, I suppose that it's not as if God is only God over my religious self or over the mm -hmm. times I'm being explicitly spiritual and my real life, so to speak, or the times where I'm not feeling very spiritual or you know, the times where, or actually I may even be tempted to doubt in some way, or just be confused that he's somehow absent or detached from that experience. So having the general big picture view of just God's, you know, sovereign power over all things and his jurisdiction, I guess, so to speak, over all things, just reminds me of whose world I live in and that I'm not just some kind of rogue, you know, element outside of, you know, his ability to mm -hmm. see me, to know me, and yes, to control the things that take place in my life even. That's good. How could skipping so quickly to those finer points actually... Do you think they could belittle, if we skip to it that fast, could it belittle that sovereignty of God, like what we're experiencing or those around us are dealing with if we skip to it? Yeah, we're embodied people. So, you know, certainly the, you know, the intellect has a lot, you know, we bring the intellect to bear in our experiences. And yet when we go straight to some sort of intellectual conception of divine sovereignty, or just we want to get to the theological minutia of the thing, it's, you know, very often I think can cause further harm to someone, even if they have their mind, you know, set on the right facts, if we're denying the experience or their feelings or their, you know, the, you know, the very real emotions that are taking place in, in the midst of a deep suffering or a deep hurt, you know, or, or anything like that, anxiety, you know, things like that, we're actually not acknowledging the fullness of what God has created and the fullness of what God has you know, sovereignty over. I think the classic example of this, the biblical example of this is, you know, Job's friends, right? So the best thing they did was the first thing they did, which was they showed up and they shut up, but they didn't say anything. They just sat with them, right? They sat Shiva with them and said, because they could see that his suffering was great. And I, you know, there's something powerful in the ministry of just being there of presence. And I'm sure we could all share stories that sort of testified to that fact as well. Then they started opening their mouths and it wasn't that is as if everything they said was untrue. Some of the things they said, I think, are, are, you know, misconceptions and some of the things were, you know, not quite airtight theology, but some of the things they said were true. They're just ill-timed and they're not, 
you know, not compassionate in their application to their mm -hmm. friend who had really, you know, was really hurting. So I think sometimes we can compound someone's hurt when we sort of ignore, you know, fail to empathize with them, I suppose, and go straight to, well, let's do the math on this thing, you know, and, uh, you know, I, we, we treat each other like we're just sort of, you know, brains in a jar or something and not exactly, <laughs> you know, human beings. But when Christ came, he put on everything, humanity, not, you know, he didn't just come as a disembodied brain floating around. He had the, you know, the full gamut of human experience. And so, you know, I hope that we can acknowledge, yes, you know, and, you know, we are fallen and, and our emotions aren't to, you know, guide us like our knowledge of God and of his word is to guide us, but they still tell us important things. And I think when we sort of, when we jump over that, I think we can actually cause more confusion and hurt to people. You know, as counselors, we often, you know, are dealing with people in the midst of their pain and suffering. And I was reflecting not too long ago about the fact that like Romans eight for me is a high watermark in scripture. Like it's one of my favorite passages. And yet one of my least favorite or least quoted verses in counseling is Romans eight twenty eight, because there rarely is a moment where it doesn't feel like a trite response to someone's suffering. Right. Some of that's because if you just kind of pull it out of context, you're missing everything that's leading up to it. You're missing what's on the other side of it. God's purpose is actually to conform us to the likeness of Christ. So I guess with that, are there times where in a sense it's, you know, you've, I've often heard like right theology, wrong verse, but sometimes it's also like right verse, wrong moment. Are there ways in which we can use scripture in a more thoughtful way to kind of help people connect with the reality of God's sovereignty in the midst of their suffering that doesn't just feel like a trite, like, well, God works all things together for good kind of response. Yeah, I think so. And I, I also think sometimes it's not even the verse or maybe even the timing, but the nature of the relationship. If there's someone I don't have a very, you know, deep relationship with, and I'm trying to comfort somebody who's, who's grieving to kind of, you know, go straight to applying a Bible verse, like it's some kind of band-aid or you know, vitamin for somebody to take that can feel like in a sense, bad bedside manner. Like I'm just trying to, you know, throw Bible verses at them. But if it's somebody that I've walked through a lot of life with, and there's a depth, there's a context to our relationship. I think I can go there sooner because they know me. I know them. There's, you know, even if it sort of stings like, oh, that's kind of cold comfort right here in this moment, there's still a context to our relationship that I think can offset that, make it more palatable. But I think generally one of the best approaches is not to just, you know, be prescribing Bible verses, but to help people, you know, put them in a position to discover these things on their own, in a sense, um, to ask questions that maybe guide them to coming to these same conclusions. Hey, let's read Romans eight together. You know, we read it through, was there anything in there that really ministered to you? Was there, you know, rather than taking something out and trying to kind of pin it on them, Again, depending on the nature of your re relationship, that could be effective, I suppose. But sort of putting them in the position to come across Romans eight twenty eight on their own or to encounter it on their own. I think in a lot of ways, songs are like this. We, especially in some of the classic hymns, we sang yesterday at our church, whatever my God ordains is right. I'm not going through a particularly difficult time in my life right now, but in any given Sunday morning, there are people in our church who are things that we know about, things that we don't. 
I was actually thinking through as we we're singing this song, and I'm just affirming the theology of it. Whatever my God ordains is right. You know, I'm thinking, okay, how is this song landing for someone who you know just you know is under threat of divorce right now, or mm. you know who just lost their husband right now? How is this song landing for them? And I think sometimes the singing of things like that, the rehearsal of the, just sort of the incidental encounter of the song at church versus someone trying to say, hey, whatever God ordains is right, man, you know, to the person who's suffering. Music sort of transmits on a medium that sometimes even just the spoken word cannot. It's a great way to um, maybe even pastorally apply scripture. So sometimes I don't think it's the theology or the verse. It's just sort of the context and the contour, I suppose, of how it's presented and the relational, you know, connection that we have with people that can kind of get us there more quickly or, or not. But all of that, of course, involves, you know, that we see people as people and not as, you know, numbers to crunch and, you know, that sort of thing. As, as part of preparation for this podcast, actually, on Thursday, I was driving from Georgia back down to Florida and listened to your book, Love Me Anyway, on the way back. So which by the way, I'd recommend to all of our readers, excellent book. <laughs> and in that book, you share pretty transparently about a really dark season in your life and some friends who came around you in that season. And I was wondering if in their ministry to you, if there were ways in which they kind of personally applied God's sovereignty in ways that felt meaningful, that were that encouraged you. And I guess, conversely, were there people who maybe spoke into your life during that time that just it felt more like toxic positivity, like, well, just look up, everything will be okay. God's in control. I'm, I realize I'm kind of putting you on the spot here, but it's sure you'd be willing to reflect on that a little bit. Yeah. I don't know if I have a great answer to the question because the people that I think I might've been tempted to, or I, I would have been inclined to think would give me bad answers. I didn't really talk to or, or open to. Uh, That's I, fair. Anyone, That's fair. anyone with the, who, who reeks of toxic positivity, I suppose is, you know, somebody that I generally would steer away from us. That's uh, called discernment. Yeah. Well, and it's, it was also, you know, when I was going through a really, you know, distinct period of depression and, you know, it was really, I just didn't tell people about it. In fact, I kind of understand sometimes when, when we lose, you know, loved ones to suicide sometimes and folks say, he seems so happy or, or like, I had no idea. He never... And like, well, it doesn't always look the way you think that it should look like depressed mm -hmm. people don't always look, you know, moping around in public. In fact, sometimes what contributes to the depression is this need to kind of hold up this facade, you know, public face that then just feels even heavier when they're in their private moments. So I didn't really open up to a whole lot of people. And part, you know, part of that was just, you know, embarrassment, shame and that sort of thing. But also... I wouldn't open up to people that I thought couldn't be helpful anyway. And in the, you know, the few friends that I did kind of let in, I don't recall them kind of saying, Hey, you know, God's in control and it's, it's all going to work out or any of those sorts of things. I just remember them listening really well. I think they knew that I had that theology and probably it would seem somewhat hollow for them to kind of tell me things that I already knew. Um, there might've been times where there was reminders, I suppose or just encouragements to keep going maybe. But what I recall is just a lot of listening. I think there's a difference in sort of, you can sort of validate somebody's feelings without affirming all the conclusions they make about them. So there was a sense of, 
I never got the sense from anybody that I opened up to that it was wrong for me to feel a certain way or that I was in sin to feel a certain way. Now, they didn't, you know, affirm some of the, you know, things that I would say about, you know, about my feelings, like maybe I should just check out or, you know, those sorts of things. But I never felt a sense of, I don't know, condemnation or really even criticism, I think. They were just good listeners. And sometimes even sharing their own stories was helpful to me. It made me feel not alone, you know, not so isolated. That can go, I mean, as you all know, that can go sideways too sometimes when someone's saying, well, when I went through this, or, you know, that can be a weird kind of off-putting <laughs> thing. But when it was, a, when you know, it's close friends and they're kind of opening up as well, that was comforting to me. It was an act of compassion, I think. So when we're going through those, as you're sharing, I'm thinking about different scenarios or friends or even things that our family is experiencing even now. How do you, how would you distinguish between believing in God's good and faithful character? Because the truth is that if we, if we divorce God being kind and gentle and loving from his sovereignty, then sovereignty isn't all that great, but sovereignty is good because he is good. So how do you distinguish between believing in his good character and reminding yourself of that versus I just need to stay positive and get to the end of this? Because I think even <laughs> yeah. for me, we so our family is in a transition right now. We're about to sell everything and move across the country and join a staff of a different church. I think part of me is going, okay, just get to the end of it. Just get to the end of it. But I know better than that, right? And so then I'm thinking, okay, I can't just get to the end of it because when I get to the end of it, I'm going to have to get through something else on the other side of that. Yeah. So I think there's so many different ways that my brain, there's so many different alleys my brain can go down. So how would you, Jared, then counsel me? How would you encourage me then to lean into, what's the difference between believing God's character and just trying to be positive to get to the end of it? Yeah, well, I think, you know, the first thing, I think I would distinguish between just trying to be positive and what you were describing, which is just, let me just get, let me get through this. Let me get to the end of it. I mean, I, I can distinctly remember in my difficult days, having like this shred of hope where I would just sort of say to myself, let's just get through this day. And I had this idea of like, well, what if it's different tomorrow? And then tomorrow would come and it wouldn't be different, but I would just sort of mm -hmm. say to myself, let's just get through this day because tomorrow it might be different. And that went on for day, for days and days. It went on for, you know, a little over a year, actually. If I was looking at just the mass of, okay, it's not been different in six months or, you know, that sort of thing, I could have felt, you know, it, it would have made my problem worse. But I was able to say, I can get through this day and maybe tomorrow will be different. And then, you know, lo and behold, there was finally that tomorrow where it was different. And so, I, you know, it's not the whole of of the issue. It's the, the silver bullet to these sort of things, but I don't want to underestimate the power of just get through this day, mm -hmm. just, you know, get through it. And I think even sometimes in, you know, some of the, you know, coaching I do with pastors as well, who often find themselves in just in the weeds of church conflict and division, mm -hmm. or just a very angsty season helping them to see, because when we're in the middle of that, all we're just in reactive mode and we only feel what's going on around us to say, brothers, there's a pasture land on the other side of this. I don't know when you're going to get to it, but I promise you it's there. And if you could just sort of, in a way, kind of, I don't know, 
have an out-of-body experience to look down on this imaginary map of your life, you'll see there's a pasture up ahead and it's worth, you know, you know, it's worth it to keep going. But there is the kind of positivity that's sort of like, I'm in denial of the things that are around me. And, you know, I'm kind of faking it till I make it. I'm putting a smile on my face. That's, uh, it's a denial of, you know, first of all, the, you know, what's right and wrong and what's true and false, because God only deals with us on the playing field of reality. And there's nothing that is, you know, of benefit to us that involves denying what is true, just trying to pretend in, in, in some way. And so I think the fundamental difference between sort of belief in, in God's character and sort of just being positive is that God's character is what is true and what is real, whereas just trying to stay positive is very often a facade. It's a kind of falsehood and, and a dishonesty. You don't see, for instance, that kind of approach in any of the Psalms, right? John Calvin called the Psalms an anatomy of the soul. The idea is like you see the gamut of human experience and human emotion. You don't see anyone's, well, I'm just gonna, you know, hope for the best and pretend that everything's fine and eventually it will be. No, you see them crying out, how long, O oh Lord, is such a recurring phrase for that reason. You know, Psalm 42 is one of the, I think a picture of depression in yeah. some way. You know, my tears are my food. I basically want to die. When can I just go be with God? There's a sense of despair there. But then where you see the psalmist, you know, where he goes in response to that is not a kind of, well, let me just, you know, sum it up my strength and be happy. It's I'm going to talk to myself. I'm going to, I'm going to preach to my soul and say, why are you downcast? I'm going to examine this situation. I'm going to deal with reality. And then also put your hope in God, he says. So his hope, whether it's positive or negative or whatever he's feeling, his hope is in the unchanging attributes of, of the character of God. So I think that's the major difference. The other difference too is just if your hope is rooted in the character of God rather than just in some sort of positivity that you're going to try to summon up, it's rooted in where power is versus in yourself. You know, trying to fix yourself with your own resources is a, is a losing game. So with that, you know, with what you were just saying there in terms of the expression of honest lament and grief before the Lord, how does that pair with God's sovereignty? I mean, that, and sometimes when we are grieving, we say things that would appear to an outside observer as if we're not trusting in God's sovereignty. And yet I think often what we're trying to do is process what has happened and make sense of it in light of this belief that we have, and it's just not squaring, you know, God's in control and yet my life is in wreckage. How can these things be? How long, O oh Lord, you know, those kinds of questions just flow out of us when we're grieving. So how does, how do you bring grief and a solid belief in God's sovereignty together in a way in which believing in sovereignty doesn't squeeze out the freedom to give honest lament before the Lord and the honest lament doesn't just spiral out into kind of cynicism or just expressions of unbelief because, you know, you know, what does it matter anyway? It's a great question. And I think it's a question that those who are not really steeped in the Bible's word about these things would really struggle to answer. You know, even if we're, if they're sort of, I mean, I'm just thinking of just kind of even in my, you know, my previous, you know, ministry life in kind of the attractional world where, yeah, we dealt with felt needs of things like discouragement or suffering and those sorts of things. And we would have Bible verses that we would kind of point people to, 
but they were really detached from the biblical word on suffering, on hardship, being stewarded by God towards our good. It was all about how to get out of it, which of course we all want. That's a natural thing. There's nothing, you know, wouldn't begrudge anyone who wants to get out of suffering and we pray for healing. But the, the consistent pattern of the scriptures is that the Lord uses this to sanctify us. And, you know, the overarching aim is to make us more like Jesus, to that we would become more like Christ. That's the goal. And so for the Christian who is set on God's word, it's normal, it's human to not want to suffer. And it's normal and human to pray that this suffering would be alleviated, that we would be healed. And yet we also know that suffering makes us like Jesus, and that's actually preferable. Becoming more like Christ is better than never experiencing discomfort. And for, you know, for... In his wisdom, he's decided this is how it's supposed to work. And so you see things like in the, you know, in the weeds of the scripture, you see things like Paul talking about the privilege of suffering. The author of Hebrews saying that, the, the, you know, those early Christians joyfully endured the plundering of their property. You know, how do you get to rejoicing in the midst of suffering? You have to believe that the Lord is doing something with it. Not just that he's sovereign over it, right? That, you know. That's just acknowledging he's God in some way. He's God over this stuff. But to believe he's actually stewarding it towards something that's good for us, that in the end, when all the suffering is wiped away and every tear is wiped from our eyes and there and death is no more even, we're going to look back and go, man, that was so painful. But from this vantage point, it was, it was so worth it. And I would rather have this treasure now, having gone through that, than to not have this treasure and having avoided all of that. It's, you know, it really is about sort of keeping an eye on what God is doing with it, that he's not wasting any of it. You know, he's in a sense, you know, storing up our tears and, uh, you know, they're gonna be translated to treasure in the age to come. That may sound, I mean, you know, for someone who's hurting now, that, that could also be a kind of cold comfort, I suppose. But it would be even worse, I think, if we, if I didn't believe this is going somewhere that God's going to do something with us. I'm going to be rewarded for all this. You know, I remember once I was on a radio show, this was ages ago, probably 15 years or so ago. And I got ambushed as a reformed guy by these, it was some kind it was some Canadian Christian radio station where they just were attacking me as a, like a believer in God's sovereignty, basically. And one of the questions was like, is God, you know, how is, you know, God sovereign over the Holocaust? Like, did he cause the Holocaust? And this is like, you know, radio two minute sound bites. And I was like, well, first of all, <laughs> this is not a two minute conversation, you know, just the nature, you know, the historical atrocity of the Holocaust is not a two minute sound bite issue. Trying to talk about how that can occur and God can be sovereign at the same time is certainly not a two minute sort of conversation. But I just sort of suggested consider the alternative the Holocaust occurs and God isn't in control. I don't know in his wisdom why he allows certain things to happen, why people go through very, you know, terrible, devastating, despicable things at the hands of others. I don't have the mind of God to understand that. And my attempted answers from the Bible may not satisfy. I mean, you know, you know they don't satisfy everybody, but I just want to suggest, consider the alternative. All these terrible things happen and God is not in control. He has no recourse for these things. There is no justice waiting people who, you know, commit atrocities that, that he is powerless against these things. Is that more comforting? 
Do you find that more satisfying? I'd rather live in the mystery and kind of the tension a little bit and believe he's going to make it right. He's going to bring justice. He's going to reward and comfort those who suffer. I'd rather believe that. Seems like in either direction, it's about stripping ourselves of that rationalistic impulse, right? Like there's a, it's a rationalism on one side that says, I can't, can't square God's sovereignty with suffering, so therefore he must not be sovereign. And then there's a rationalism on the other side, which I've kind of encountered in like very reformed contexts that I've served in where I see some people who say, well, because I believe God is sovereign, I just have to kind of keep a stiff upper lip about everything that happens. <laughs> All right. And can't get too emotionally engaged with it or even have that kind of dynamic engagement with the Lord that asks hard questions and cries out to him and acknowledges the pain of suffering. And it seems like either one of those is kind of rationalizing out our response in a way that's really unhealthy and doesn't hold together that the dynamic tension that I think is clearly there in scripture. Yeah. I mean, it's again, the latter thing you described is a kind of denial of reality in some way, not, you know, not feeling what we feel, you know, not saying what we think. And, and ironically, it almost has this air of like, I've got to, you know, tighten up, keep that stuff, you know, stiff upper lip for what reason, as if that's somehow empowering the meaning of God's sovereignty over my life, whether you acknowledge it or not, whether you feel it or not, whether in the moment it's comforting to you or not, it's still, God is still sovereign. I just think it's one of the great pictures of grace that even for those of us who have momentary lapses of good theology, the Lord still loves us and he still cares for us. And sometimes we can come back around to that good theology on the back end. We need to establish it on the front end. So we, you know, so we can come back around to it on the back end, but even in that in-between time, the true things are still true. And so I, if that's the case, I think it's okay to lament. It's okay to grieve. It's okay to ask God why it's okay. I mean, you see all of this in the Psalms as well. It's better for us actually to be human before God and not try to be, you know, some kind of impressive, you know, theology bot or something that we think is more fitting or, I mean, or more, yeah. More impressive, I guess, to him. Less messy anyway. That's right. Yes. Yes. Which is such a facade because he sees the mess that we are. Anyway, you know, I think it's usually for other people's impression that we do that. It's certainly not for the Lord's. He sees right mm -hmm. through everything. I think about, I work with a lot of women who have been abused or have walked through adultery in marriages, even particularly pastor's wives who have endured some horrific stories. I think about them in this context and working through resentment and bitterness and anger, emotions that uh, are a correct response to what's happening, right? God doesn't like what's happening. She shouldn't like what's happening. And I'm obviously giving a very particular context because of who I'm counseling here. But I think having an appropriate emotional response means that we are angry and that we do grieve. To not grieve over that sin would be weird and abnormal, but to actually not like it is is correct. I think about Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, begging God to do it a different way, but yet I'll be faithful. This is the story you have for me. Do you see confidence in God's sovereignty in the lives of people around us and us should keep us from becoming resentful and bitter when we're treated unjustly or maliciously by other people? Yeah, I mean, among other things, certainly, but it's, yes, against bitterness and sinful 
anger, but I don't think it's it's meant to temper just the normal human responses or even Christ-like responses. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, to see how Jesus, you know, even sinlessly embodied humanity, you know, carried around what it meant to really be human. And he, you know, injustice made him angry. Sad things made him sad, right? You know, his friend Lazarus dies. Well, he's going to raise him again, and he knows that he can. And yet he's weeping. He's entering in the grief of Lazarus's sisters, Jesus's friends. Now, I've heard even some people kind of rationalize this away to say, oh, he's crying about the unbelief of the, you know, those who don't believe that he is in control. And I want to acknowledge that's, you know, I guess that's a possibility. I don't know that my interpretation is infallible here, but I think he was grieving because his friend was dead and and he was grieving because his friend's sisters were grieving and he was sharing their grief with them. Well, it's not a denial of what he's going to do or a denial of reality that he has conquered death. In fact, he comforts, you know, Martha that way, right? Anyone who believes in me will never die. So he's giving her good theology, but he's also, you know, a human man. And he's sad that his friend has died. He's sad that death is in the world. Right. Grieved by fallenness mm-hmm. in general. And so I think if we look at the humanity of Christ, and while we cannot be Jesus, so to speak, you know, and his is un, you know, unstained by sin, we, we can see, I think, authorization in some way to the normal human experience of, of righteous indignation when we or others are taken advantage of, when we see corruption and injustice in the world, when we see evil in the world, that righteous indignation is an appropriate and godly response to those things. You know, be angry, and yet in your anger, do not sin. Mm-hmm. So I think that's what precludes the bitterness and those sorts of things. But but it's not about trying to avoid, quote unquote, negative emotions. I think about, I think it was Elizabeth Elliot with the next faithful steps. And in, particularly in those contexts, not having to push through it like the emotional robot that we're talking about. The emotional reformed robot, but looking at it in terms of I'm going to grieve with hope and therefore I'm just going to take the next faithful steps, which is kind of like what you're talking about earlier. Maybe tomorrow will be better. So we could put that in the context of next faithful steps and not necessarily I'm going to be a positive person. People like positive people, I think. Don't they? (laughs) I don't know. Well, I guess some people. I, I wouldn't <laughs> categorize myself as like a super positive person. I have friends that are super positive uh, or they're like naturally more sunny than I am. That's fine. And they have their beliefs, right? I wouldn't necessarily let them counseling me or like one of my best friends. She is lovely. She's a lovely Italian woman who's going to make you the best meatballs on the planet. That's not going to be me. And she's going to be really positive when she does it. But I know that if I've had a bad day, she's probably not going to be the one I unpack it with, right? But she still has her her plenties, if you will. Yeah. So how would you say, even distinguishing that in friendships, do you think it, do we need to be able to share with everybody? Or do you think, yeah, there's that context in which maybe you don't go to other people or particular people? Yeah, well, I mean, it's, I mean, that's the beauty of the church, first of all, right? I mean, you know, even sort of expanding the idea of friendship, you're not best friends with everybody in the church, and yet you have the resources available to you. You've covenanted with these people, your family with these people, their experiences in my life that in my own, you know, biological family, I'll talk to my brother about certain things that I won't talk to my dad about and vice versa mm. because of experience and insight and maybe the, just the nature of the subject or whatever it is. 
I think that's true in the church as well. You know, we all have different parts and we have different personalities and gifts and things to contribute. You know, I'm thinking, you know, several years ago at our church here, there was a year where my wife and I were having dinner with a, a succession of young couples who had experienced miscarriage. And that was our, pa our pastors had connected those couples with us because we have experienced that. And they thought, you know, we didn't know those couples super well before those meals, but the pastors thought you have insight into this, you know, this experience. And so we're, you know, that we were able to speak to them on that subject. Well, if there was something else that someone else had experienced with, you connect those folks. So I just think it's the beauty of the diversity in, in, in a church that not everybody is the right person for that particular, even if we all believe the same stuff, not every person is the exact right person for every other person in a particular issue and subject. And I think friendship is like that as well. I mean, it may be a little different in the sense that you kind of pick your friends. You don't really, I mean, you pick a church, but you don't really decide who God sends there and mm. that sort of thing. I mean, ideally, I suppose you're not hopping churches every time someone is added that you don't like or something, but but there's a chemistry to friendship too, isn't there? I mean, I don't think it's very rare. I don't think I've ever become close friends with somebody who came up to me and decided that we were going to be really good friends. <laughs> That's not, I was going to say, I don't think you know how it works. Does that actually, happen to is, you often? It's happened before. And I almost want to say, this is actually, to be close with friends with me, this is the exact wrong way to start. Mm -hmm. I think there's something about you just click with somebody, maybe there's an affinity, but there's just a chemistry that I think occurs. Friendship sort of happens. Mm -hmm. I think you can be a friend to anyone. I don't think you can be friends with anyone. I think, you know, there's something, there's a free frisson, right? Whatever the, a the French word is. Yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. Something. There's a spark. C.S. Uh, Lewis, YouTube moment, right? Like, oh, YouTube. Yeah. That's a, yeah, that's exactly right. Where you see that almost secret thing that you both love or that you just are both are like, and you click, you just click with somebody. Whereas church is almost the exact opposite, right? You look at each other and you say, we don't have anything in common, mm -hmm. but, but I'm for you because of Christ. That's, I mean, that's what we have in common is we have Jesus in common. But yeah, so in my friend circles, you know, there are certain friends that I might go to with certain things and others that I wouldn't, but, but, you know, not always, you know, those friends that, you know, I've got these close friends that we still, you know, for 20 years, we've been pretty tight and we still have a text thread. We talk every week and we pretty much open up to those, you know, to the five of us, unless they're talking about stuff with each other that I don't know about. I guess that's possible. Maybe I'm the one. Maybe I'm the one on the outside mm -hmm. and I just don't realize it. That's called a side text. <laughs> is that what it is? Yes. My 11-year-old told me that. Okay, side the side text. text. Yeah, they could be side texting, I guess, and I wouldn't know. But I'm not doing that with anybody myself, so. No side texting for you. Uh, it's all there. So, Jared, zooming out a little bit from, like, interpersonal relationships just to the life of the church, are there things the church can do to encourage more of a I guess what I would call a more dynamic emotional life among believers. I think about the way, the way we structure our services, the way even funeral services are done. I, when I was a pastor, I would kind of tell people like, I'm not really going to do the celebration of life. Certainly like I'm, I'll do a funeral, but, and I had a specific reason for that, but I'm, are there ways that the church can kind of encourage a healthy embrace of God's sovereignty that doesn't just turn into like constantly singing everything is awesome <laughs> well i mean on that note i mean you know 
there's a million things I think you, you could do, but I'll just, I think, name two or three that would be really, really important in shaping towards this. And one is the kind of songs you sing, because in a lot of evangelical churches, that worship service is designed almost like a pep rally kind of experience, trying to create a sort of emotional high that for some can feel very detached from what I'm going through in, in, in my real life. And it doesn't mean, that, of course, that we're not to sing happy songs or songs about victory and songs about feeling good and all that sort of deal. But I can just imagine if someone is going through the, you know, rock bottom, they're in the worst experience of their life and they walk into, you know, certain, you know, Christian church on Sunday morning and the lights are down and the stage is illuminated. So they feel even more alone now because they can't see the people around them. And the music is performed in such a way that you can't hear the people singing around. So now I'm having an isolated, anonymous experience in the place that's designed for a community gathering. And now the nature of the songs is all about, you know, raw, you know, for Jesus and how alienating that might feel. There's nothing happening here that makes me feel connected to anyone else, that makes me feel seen by anyone else or heard by anyone else. And the songs are so detached from my reality. They're spiritually tone deaf to what I'm going through. So I think singing songs that kind of cover the gamut of human experience, you know, just to, again, we have a song book in the Bible that is at least a template for us to see. It's okay to sing songs of lament. It's okay to mm. sing songs about suffering. And some of the old hymns do this as well. And there's some, you know, modern songs that do this too, but just making sure that our songs reflect the human experience and not one note of the human experience, I think is helpful. I honestly think more important than that, more shaping than that is the pastoral persona in the pulpit. So those who preach that they're not just delivering some kind of data, that they're not just doing the theology download for the people who are there or giving kind of the red meat of, you know, exegesis to those who just really love to, you know, get into the, into Bible knowledge but that they're real people. They share stories that have, you know, personal, you know, personal resonance. They're somewhat confessional, transparent, you know, not in a immodest way, not in an inappropriate way, not in a way even, there's a way that some pastors can do, or preachers can do that, that draws a lot of attention to themselves and kind of makes them the star of the show. But just in your illustrations, use of humor, even just looking like a real person up there, so, I mean, preaching that has a reflection of, of being personable, of being empathetic, of being compassionate with my students at the seminary, when we go through our preaching section, I give them five C's. Your sermons need to match these five C's. And one of them is compassion, that what you're presenting is pastoral. It's, a, it's an act of shepherding. It's not just a performance. It's not just, a, it's not a lecture. It's, you know, trying to care for people with good news, with grace. So I think even just the way we preach sometimes can have that effect. And then in the relational settings, community settings, small groups, or what have you, training leaders really well to know how to respond when someone opens up, uh, that, that awkwardness is okay. And sometimes actually awkwardness is evidence that the thing just got real, <laughs> you know, you know, awkwardness is evidence that, that maybe something's actually working here. But we always want to kind of like, oh, let's get over that. Let's get through that. Let's cover that up. Let's move on. Let's, you know. That means have a, that. a lot of very successful small groups is what that means. That's right. That's right. <laughs> that sounds like a great next book project, Awkward Church. 
<laughs> well, maybe so. I have talked about you know that a few times in some of my books, but you know Bonhoeffer's life together. He sort of talks about not awkwardness per se, but when someone basically confesses a sin or opens up, and he says, you know, this is actually where you find out if you're really a church in one sense. You know, he says because the breakthrough. He says the breakthrough to real community does not happen because we meet each other as religious people and not as sinners that we don't permit anyone to be a sinner. And I would expand that to say, we don't want anyone to be messy, high maintenance, uh, awkward, you know, whatever it is, or just to be real. And when that happens, training leaders to know how to, to listen well, sometimes to sit in silence if necessary. We don't like silence very much, um, to let things kind of linger and, you know, to pray before perhaps even you know, trying to come in with the heat-seeking theology missile to solve that issue right there in the small group. Yeah, just things that are more, that develop more spiritual intimacy with each other. Those are, I think, three things that I would probably mention. One of the things that we're doing at Anchored Hope is building an advocate program where pastors can distinguish leaders in the church who are naturally already caring for people and teaching them to come alongside people who are getting care and counseling from Anchored Hope. And so there's that embodied presence from the local community, uh, walking alongside them as they're getting counseling from Acred Hope. So they don't lose that, the presence of the local body, but they're getting excellent care. They have an advocate walking through them to do exactly the curriculum that we have that teaches exactly what you're talking about to walk alongside and how to care for them in a way that's best for that person. So we agree with you. <laughs> okay, good deal. Yeah, that's good. And if you <laughs> don't, you'll just on the side text say, man, he, what was he <laughs> talking about? That was crazy. <laughs> we'll side text about it later. <laughs> no, that's good. Well, thank you, Jared, for joining us. Brian, do you have anything else you'd like to ask? Yeah, well, two last questions. Okay. In a moment, I'll ask you to tell us just where people can check out your resources and anything, even if there's anything on this topic that you would recommend. But then the really important question, looking over your shoulder there, is was God sovereign over Tom Brady's retirement both times? Of course. He saw both of them coming. I got to get the theologically correct answer there. I wish that I had that, you know, he could have told me that this was coming. But yeah, no, you can find my stuff at jaredcwilson.com. That's sort of the one-stop shop for links to my blog and links to all of my books and my speaking schedule and all of those sorts of things. Awesome. Well, thanks for joining us. Yeah, thanks for having me. Yeah, thanks so much, Jared. Great to have you. You've been listening to This Versus That, a podcast of Anchored Hope Virtual Counseling. To learn more about this episode or our ministry at Anchored Hope, visit anchoredhope.co. Are you a woman who wants to honor God with your life? but aren't sure how your work makes an eternal difference in the kingdom of God. Women in Work is a faith and work organization that is for every woman in every season. They produce a podcast and countless resources to inspire women to confidently step into their God-given calling and leverage their unique potential for God's glory. They also have a new book releasing, Women in Work, Bearing God's Image and Joining in His Mission Through Our Work. And you can pre-order your copy today. Go to womenwork.net to learn more. That's womenwork.net.